people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say I am? And Peter answered, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling to the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up the cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation uh, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in glory, in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. This is the word of God. Thanks, Dave. Well, after uh, Scott Long bringing the heat like he did a minute ago, I'm wondering why I'm up here extending the heat, but I think I'm, I'm going to extend the heat. Um, so last week, as we've been going through Mark, we had Pastor Nick Nye from one of our sister churches, friends of ours out in Columbus. Uh, what, we, what we saw was we saw Jesus getting a couple of heated conversations, right? A, heat, a couple of heated conversations right on the heels of feeding just 4,000 people like it was nothing. And of course, the first conversation that Jesus has is with the Pharisees who essentially ignore the miracle Jesus performed, and instead they demand another one. Not because they believe, not because they're like, hey, we really enjoyed the miracles that you're doing that give testimony to who you are, but because they were actually trying to trick him. They were trying to test him instead. And of course, Jesus, we saw, he refuses to take the bait. 
And when he warns his disciples about the Pharisees, when he warns them about their hypocrisy, which he called the leaven of the Pharisees, when he warned them, he uncovered something. He uncovered that, yes, even they, even the disciples have their own misunderstanding about who he is. And of course, this theme continues today as we'll see Jesus use the healing of a blind man to show his disciples that they are not quite getting him right. He was not quite the person that they wanted him to be. And as we apply this to our own lives, we're going to learn today, I hope, by God's grace, that if we, if we take Jesus and we try to recast him into a mold that attempts to fit our own desires, that attempts to fit what we want him to be, we end up losing everything. We end up losing the mercy and the grace and the mission of Jesus when we do that. In other words, when we try to make Jesus into the person we want him to be instead of who he truly is, we actually emasculate the glory of God. And what we're left with in its place is religion and self-righteousness. The rub, and here's the rub, and there's always a rub, the rub is that those are two things that we are just generally okay with. Religion and self-righteousness give us the Jesus our flesh actually craves, but is a counterfeit. Imagine telling your kid, imagine you got a kid, imagine telling a child that the sun is actually in orange because it's the same color and it's the same shape. I mean, that's cool and that's cute, but it would be a denial of everything the sun actually is, right? And in addition to that, it would be dangerous. It would be dangerous to mistake the sun for a piece of fruit because the sun can do things like blind people and the sun can do things like burn people. It's not what it is. It's important that we get right what it is. So... If Jesus is who he says he is, as we're seeing as we walk through this, this gospel, if Jesus is the Christ, okay, if he is the creator of all things, if he is the forgiver of sins, it means that every syllable that he spoke should be the truth that we conform our lives to. Because this is how God transforms us into the image of Christ, from one degree of glory to another, like the Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 3.18. So being crystal, crystal about who Jesus is and conforming to what Jesus says leads us to the cross, which is where we know and experience Christ. And that's really the big idea that we're going to gleam, hopefully, today from this passage. As Dave just read, as he opened up, uh, in verse, uh, in verse, uh, yeah, in the verse that he opened up with, right? In verse 22, I'm looking down right at it. Yes. All right. So Jesus is, is coming in here. He was going to have some sharp words, actually, as he's traveling to Bethsaida. Is it Bethsaida or Bethsaida? I was saying Bethsaida. You said Saida. I'm going to roll with Saida. All right. But that doesn't mean Dave was wrong. That just means we have some pronunciation differences. 
all right? So Jesus comes into Bethsaida, and what's interesting is that he was going to have some pretty sharp words eventually for the city of Bethsaida, which was a fishing town on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. In fact, if you go to Luke 10, verses 13 and 14, this is what he says. He says, it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you, Bethsaida. And it was because the people of Bethsaida saw Jesus do all kinds of mighty works, but they did not repent and believe. They ignored who he said he was. They ignored the miracles and the message of the gospel. And yet, apparently, what we see here is that there was a remnant of believers in Bethsaida who brought a blind man to Jesus, and they ended up begging him to be touched. They begged Jesus to touch him as a way to heal him. So what Jesus does is he he grabs this blind man. He grabs him by the hand. He takes him out of the village, and he spits in his eyes, right? I was... uh, I was playing a concert once back in the day. I did that back in the day. And uh, I, I had the ex- same experience actually happen to me. I, not by Jesus. Um, but somebody came up to the edge of the stage and literally spit in my face. There, there was no healing. There was no healing in that moment. Now remember, there's nothing magical here about the methods that Jesus uses to, to heal people. But I believe it illustrates to us in this particular moment that in many other times when we see Jesus do healings, I think one of the things we don't want to miss that it illustrates is that Jesus didn't do professional ministry, right? He didn't do professional ministry. He got his hands dirty, didn't he? He touched the leopards. He laid his hands on the sick. He let people come up to him and touch his garments, I mean, Jesus didn't just perform and then, you know, disappear backstage and have his handler escort him through the crowds like he was like leaving the Golden Globes, right? Jesus had a heart for those that he healed. But this time, something's a little bit different in this account of Jesus healing this blind man. He mixes things up a little bit. The blind man, as we just read, is not instantly healed like we've seen every other time in the way that Jesus has healed a person. Instead, after Jesus spits in his eyes and lays hands on him, he asks him a question in verse 23. And he asks him this. He says, do you see anything? This is what he asks the man. And then the man replies in verse 24, and he looked up and he said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Now, given how the man replies, we know that he wasn't born blind, okay? Because he knew the difference between men and trees, okay? But at this point... At this point, he could only make out their shapes because they were still blurry. They were still unclear. So Jesus goes ahead and he lays his hands on his eyes in verse 25. And then when the man opens them the second time, it says his sight is restored. That's it. He can see. Everything is clear. There's no image left blurry. He sees the trees. He sees the men. He can tell one from the other. And then that's it. That's it. That's all we're told in this account. Jesus sends him home and commands him not to enter the village. So as we've seen before, Jesus was still wanting his his authority and his identity as the Messiah. He was still keeping that hidden in places before the time that he decided that he wanted to reveal it. So he sends the man home. He says, avoid the village, go home. Now, there's a couple of things happening here. Uh, Jesus is not losing his healing touch, okay? He isn't a wizard whose magical powers are beginning to fade, 
right? That's not what's happening, nor did he, you know, momentarily forget the technique he'd like to use for healing blind people. That, that's not what happened when he touched him the first time, asked him the question, and then touched him again. Most commentators believe Jesus healed this man the way he did in two stages as a way to reveal to his disciples their own blindness to who he was. Because as a matter of fact, when we go back to verses 17 and 18, uh, look what it says. Jesus says to them, do you not yet perceive or understand? He says, are your hearts hardened? And then in verse 18, he says, having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? Right? So, so Jesus is asking them, do you, do, you, do you understand what it is that I'm doing? And do you understand who I am in doing these things? The disciples, as we see here, as we've continued to see uh, through the Gospel of Mark, they still struggled. They still struggled to see Jesus for who he really was. They, they just lacked clarity. They lacked understanding, right? And I just think about Man, how many of us can this be applied to, right? I mean, if you, if you conducted, think about it like this. If you conducted a survey, roll with me on this. If you conducted a survey on the mean streets of Ashland, um, how many people do you think would say, I believe in God or I am a Christian? How many people do you think would, would reply to the affirmative with that? I mean, nobody's answering, well, why don't you tell us, Big R? Uh, well, I didn't have time to do an official survey, um, but I'm guessing quite a few, okay? Sometimes when you ask someone about Jesus, what you get back, and this might even be you, this might be the way that you found yourself answering when you've been put on the spot, but sometimes when you ask somebody about Jesus, what you get back are a lot of thoughts about other things, a lot of thoughts about church, a lot of thoughts about denominations, a lot of thoughts about youth camps, right? A lot of thoughts about baptisms, things of that nature. And what's interesting is that sometimes people think they're talking about Jesus without talking about Jesus, without mentioning Jesus, the cross, the resurrection, or forgiveness of sins, things that we have to associate with Jesus because it's part and parcel of who he is and why he came. For many people... Jesus simply means church, very generically, right? It means church. It means tithing. It means awkward conversations. It means bad coffee, right? We're trying to help out with the latter two, by the way. I mean, we're trying to help out with all of it. But that's, that's not Jesus. That's not Jesus. Hanging around people in places that are Jesus-friendly, it's not Jesus. It's not Jesus. So... If that might be the case in our town, what about Jesus' own disciples here who we're reading about? These were brothers who were with him full time, but they were still crippled by an unbelief in him that just absolutely was poisoning their minds. Because you can be really near Jesus, but do you really know him? That's the question. For many of us, man, Jesus can just be like, you know, an obscure relative almost, you know, like, like someone we know we're related to, but we never really see, but we're still kind of hoping they include us in their will when they pass. 
Some of us think of Jesus that way. So the question that I want to ask is, are we getting Jesus right? Do we see him more clearly today than when we first received him? And not just do we see him, but do we savor him? Is he our treasure? And again, we don't need to worry about that necessarily because God has a habit of unfolding moments in our lives to bring clarity to our blurry vision, as we'll see here. In fact, there was something about this miracle that further opened Peter's eyes to who Jesus was as you look down on verse 27, where Jesus heads out with his disciples. They go on what was a 25-mile journey from Bethsaida to Caesarea, Caesarea Philippi, and he uses the time, again, like he does in this sort of rabbinic method that Jesus had in teaching his disciples, which was a very hands-on method. He uses the time to teach and instruct them. And he asks them in verse 27. He asks them the question. He says, who do people say that I am? And what we see about this question is that it's kind of a setup, actually. It's kind of a setup. Jesus is probing. He's calling his disciples to consider popular opinion and to think just for a minute about how the culture was defining him and whether they simply were just falling in line with what everybody else thought about who Jesus was. And by the way, that that question is constantly hovering over us. Who is Jesus? We are, whether you believe it or not, we are constantly faced with that question by what people are saying, by our actions, by the way we live our lives, by how we interpret scripture. The question is always hovering over us. Who do you say that Jesus is. Everybody has an opinion about who Jesus is. Even apathy, even not caring. I talked to somebody who just said, I don't care. I said, well, that's your opinion. It's still an opinion, right? But scripture forces us to answer the question ourselves in our own hearts and with our own lives. Because here's what's scary. Every action in your life reflects your reaction to the words of Jesus. There is no escaping that. And since you're in this church and you know what Jesus says, you're without excuse. The disciples say, well, word on the street is that you're John the Baptist, you're Elijah, maybe one of the old school prophets. Jesus is like, okay, but now I want you to answer this, right? So he gets their answer and now he's gonna probe a little bit deeper. He says, answer me this, who do you say that I am? And of course, Peter, right? I mean, Peter just, just so blunt, man. Dude just like comes out, blurts out his answer by declaring, you are the Christ. I mean, can we just take a minute and just say like Peter nails it, right? Like finally, like finally, Peter, it's like the first right thing Peter has ever like said or maybe will ever say until he writes his, his letters. And in fact, if we go to Matthew's gospel, we get, we get this more detailed reply that Jesus gives to Peter when he says this. He says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. He changes his name. And he says, on this rock... He says, I'm going to build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. 
So in Matthew's gospel, we get the response of Jesus to Peter where he praises him and he calls him blessed and he says this truth was revealed to him supernaturally by God the Father. And what we have here is just such another clear example in Scripture that faith is not our own. It is given to us. It is a gift. It is a gift by God when he reveals the truth about the identity and the intentions of his son. Peter crushes it. He crushes it. Not only that, but he's also been promoted to CEO of some new church planning venture Jesus is going to launch in the future, right? Best day ever for Peter. I mean, you, I mean, look down at the, you, I mean, dude's probably like, ask me something else, Jesus, because I'm just like feeling like the boss right now. But here's the rub, because there's always a rub. Here's the rub. If Jesus is the Christ, if Jesus is who Peter just said he was, if he's the Christ, brother, that means certain things. It has implications. And of course, it's no different now. If Jesus is the Christ, it means something more than just getting his name right. That's not why Jesus praised Peter. It wasn't just because he got Jesus' you know, elongated title right, right? It's not because he just mentioned calling Jesus the Christ or Mr. Jesus the Christ. You know, that's not what was going on there. It wasn't just because he got his name right. I remember, gosh, my, she's going to hate that I'm telling this story, but I'm going to roll it out there. Um, I remember when we first started dating, we, uh, we actually hadn't really dated yet, me and my wife. And uh, it was crazy because uh, some of you guys I think I've told this story to, but, uh, you know, we had, we had talked one time on the phone and uh, I called her back, you know, and, you know, her dad answered and I was petrified as you should be and uh, I left a message for her. And, uh, you know, three weeks go by and I don't hear anything. And I'm like, all right, well, there, there it was. There was the attempt. You know, I tried, you know, and uh, I said, you know, I guess God has someone else for me. And turns out she calls me a week later, and she says, okay, I hate to tell you this. And I'm like, oh, no. Um, she says, I, I, I've been calling the wrong Ronnie for three weeks. <laughs> and she said, not only that, but this dude just kept talking to me every time I called. <laughs> and at some point, I thought he sounded a little, little weird, like, like he didn't want to talk to me. And I, and I was like, you know, you just sound like you don't really want to chat. And then he said, you know, you just kind of started calling me out of the blue, and I don't really know what this is about. And in fact, we've never met. And she's like, what's your last name? And he's like, Smith. <laughs> that was it, right? So she called me, she told me the story, and you know, a week later we got married. So it was, <laughs> love was in the air. It was in the air. So uh, name right, person wrong, right? We can get the name of Jesus right, but be wrong about who he is, what he says, and what he's calling us to. Look what happens to Peter when that goes wrong as we read verses 31 through 33. You can look down at those passages while I kind of take us through them. Peter says, I know who you are. Peter says, you are the Christ. So Jesus responds and says, great, now let me tell you what I must do as the Christ and then he lays it out. He says, I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to die. And then I'm going to rise again. And this is where we see Jesus finally turning this corner to reveal the gory details of his redemptive mission. 
This is the first time we see him being this clear, and it says he spoke plainly to them. This is not what the disciples were expecting to hear Jesus say. This was a job description that didn't fit with anybody who'd been waiting for the Messiah to appear as the all-conquering political and military hero king. They still, they still had that view of him kind of stuck in their minds. And this is what's interesting right here. Peter, this brother is so offended by Jesus' comments that he literally takes him aside and starts rebuking him in verse 32. Now, we want to get this word rebuke right because it's not just like he just kind of brought Jesus aside and said, hey, you know, let's just kind of be careful about the things that we say. And I mean, he literally comes, to, I mean, if you've ever been cussed out, I mean, that's essentially the modern vernacular of what Peter did when he took Jesus to the side. He basically said, you will never talk about this again. And he used a lot stronger language than that. So Peter's offended. Jesus tells him in plain language, he tells him and the disciples in plain language what his mission is, and Peter's just blown away, right? He's like, what's with all this Mad Max death talk, Jesus? Like, I just said you are the Christ. Like, didn't I just nail that? Like, why all the doom and gloom? Essentially, that's what Peter's saying. The problem is that Peter wanted Jesus the Savior, but not Jesus the suffering Savior, which is the Jesus of the Bible. And it's interesting how Jesus responds. Peter takes Jesus to the side. He pulls him off to the side in private to rebuke him, but Jesus... He disciplines Peter right out in the open, in full earshot of the other disciples, because this was their rebuke too, by the way. But notice what he says in verse 33. He rebukes Peter, but he addresses Satan and says, get behind me. Interesting that Jesus accuses Satan, who's also known as the accuser, of having the wrong mind of having the wrong mind, a mindset on the things of man, it says, instead of on the things of God. Now remember, all this time that Jesus is at work, there is an adversary at work to try and reverse God's plan of redemption. He tries to influence those closest to Jesus, and in fact, he, he succeeds. He succeeds with a guy named Judas Iscariot, which, by the way, has never made the list for most popular boys' names, Right? But even here, we see Peter momentarily succumb to the man-centered, the man-minded lies of the devil. A uh, pastor, author, a guy named James Montgomery Boyce made this comment. He said, preoccupation with self is the chief sin of the modern world. Chief sin of the modern world? chief sin of the ancient world. Again, the problem is that if Jesus is the Christ, it means something very specific, doesn't it? If he's the Messiah, if he's the Savior, it means something very specific to both Jesus and to those who follow him. So he explains very clearly in verse 34 as he calls the crowd and disciples to him. And what Jesus does here, and let me just read that. Let's read that. 34 through 38, and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to him, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. 
And then he says this, verse 36, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? It's interesting that he uses almost just even common logic for us right there. What does it gain somebody to, to gain everything that someday he's going to lose in exchange with his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my, of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. By the way, I had Dave read through chapter 9, verse 1. We're going to leave verse 1 until next week. We're going to pick up with that next week. So what Jesus does is describe here two destinies, okay? Two destinies that await all people and the fate that's attached to each of those destinies. One is to reject the world in exchange for a reward in heaven. The other is to gain the world in exchange for rejection by God. Now, both destinies include giving up one thing to gain another thing. But each pursuit is characterized by a particular mindset, it says, that drives a person towards certain actions. Very simply, it says this, followers of God, they lose their life, but they gain their soul. But he says, in essence, foes of God, if I can use an old term, because it's an F, right? Gain their life, but lose their soul. And when we talk about life, we're talking about the life that we accumulate and we build here on earth. The temporary life that is ticking down for all of us right now. The consequence, this is the consequence. In verse 38, the consequence is that Jesus will reject those who reject him by choosing to gain everything they can in this world at the expense of the next world. If we hide in shame from Jesus and instead choose to align with the shame of our generation, the shameful thoughts, the shameful pursuits, the shameful gain of our generation, he says Jesus will hide in shame from us when he returns in glory. It's actually even more pointed and horrific than that when we consider how Jesus rebuked Peter. Okay? He basically said, setting your mind, listen, setting your mind on the things of man to gain the whole world is thinking satanically is what he's saying. That's how serious, that's how serious this rebuke of Peter was. <clears throat> Excuse me. It means you are thinking satanically. Yeah, I literally just said that. Followers of God have the mind of Christ. Foes of God have the mind of Satan. That's language. That's, that's heavy, heavy language. That's language that we need to wrestle with. That's language that we don't hear people talking about, right? That's not stuff that you were chatting about like over coffee yesterday, most likely, with your friends. And this is what he's saying. The satanic-influenced mind pursues worldly-minded things. It doesn't deprive itself of any desire because self-glory is its highest value. 
But the Christ-influenced mind pursues spiritually-minded things. It deprives itself of sinful desires because God's glory is its highest value. And, you know, we have, an, we have a struggle, don't we? We have a sinful struggle, not just in our culture. It's easy to say in our culture, right? But personally, in our hearts, we misvalue things. We don't place the proper value on the things that deserve the worth and the value that they deserve. Now, I remember one time my daughter, Beth, um, she, uh, her, her friend, they, they started picking. They, this was out in California. I don't know if we have these out here. But uh, they started picking and selling this, this flower called an oleander. All right? Now, if you know anything about oleanders, they're poisonous. Right? So, uh, so I got my kid on the sidewalk setting up her oleander stand, <laughs> selling oleanders for five bucks a pop. Right? That's my kid trying to kill people for a profit, right? It was a proud moment. It was a proud moment for Big R. But it's seeing the things of this world for what they really are. It's a beautiful flower, but it's deadly. It's fatal. We need to see Jesus for who he truly is, which is a treasure. When you read some parables in Matthew 13, two of them say this, when they talk about the kingdom of heaven, when they talk about the things of God worth pursuing, it says the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, it says, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Then he tells another story, another parable. He says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. So we're talking about the infinite value and worth of the things of God over and above the things of man. And what's hard about this and the way Jesus presented this to his disciples is that the way of Christ, the mind of Christ, is the way of the cross. If you believe Jesus is the Christ, then you believe Jesus had to die. If you believe Jesus had to die, then you also believe you have to die like Jesus. To die like Jesus is gaining life with Jesus, though. And that's what they were not seeing clearly. To not deny yourself, to not take up your cross, to not follow Jesus and lose your life means you're getting Jesus all wrong. It means your values are out of skew. It means there's a chance that you're thinking the way Satan thinks, which is pursuing and valuing the very things that Jesus died to save you from. Let's go to Luke chapter 12, verse 13. Luke 12, 13. This is the parable of the rich fool, as it's called here. Luke chapter 12, verse 13. I'm just going to read it as you guys are getting there. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? And he said to him, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. In verse 16, and he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. 
I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. This is not a parable against building a barn, okay? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns, build larger ones, and there will I store my grain, my goods, and I will say to my soul, notice, notice what he's doing after he builds these, these, these storehouses for himself. He's not giving thanks to God. He's speaking to himself. He's turning, he's falling back into what we all do, which is self-glory. And he says to his soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up. Everything's good. Everything's stacked is what he's saying. I feel good. For many years, I'm good. I'm going to relax. I'm going to eat. I'm going to drink. I'm going to be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared Whose will they be? In other words, like, this is nice that you're building these things, but what happens when you go? And by the way, you're going tonight. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. This is what Jesus is talking about to his disciples, about a different kind of richness, about a richness toward God. So given this, we can conclude that everything hinges on, now, what our minds are set upon, right? Romans 8, verses 5 through 8 says this, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. And then it goes on to say, For to set the mind on the flesh is death. That's what Jesus just said. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. Jesus didn't say, get behind me, Satan, because the next day they were going to kiss, make up, and like kick it. That was hostility against the mission of Christ. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God, is what Paul says here to the church in Romans. Dude, that's big. That's heavy, and it's big and it's heavy because it's easy for our vision to become blurry. It's easy, so easy for us to pursue things that cloud our vision for Christ. But when we get Jesus right, it means we're seeing him for who he is. Here's some ways that we can do that. Number one, Getting Jesus right is being rebuked by Jesus. Dude, what? We need to let the rebukes of Jesus rebuke us. Okay? Jesus was realigning his disciples when he rebuked Peter. Was it for Peter's good? Would it be the last rebuke for Peter? Hex no. I mean, it wouldn't. But the book of Hebrews tells us that the rebuke of God is actually... An act of love. Hebrews 12, verses 5, 6, and 11 say, My son, don't regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when, when we're, approved, we're reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So getting Jesus right in our minds and in our hearts means being rebuked by him and receiving that. Secondly, it means conforming to Jesus. 
conforming to Jesus. We get Jesus right when Jesus writes our wrongs about him. Peter declared, he did it, man. He nailed it. Peter declared Jesus was the Christ, but he misunderstood the mission of Christ, which was that he had to suffer in our place so that only suffering, the only suffering we would experience would be on earth instead of in eternity. That's why Jesus suffered. Conformity to the world believes the opposite. But we conform to Christ when we don't simply observe his words, but we actually obey them. And you know what? This is freedom. This is freedom because the words of Jesus and the way of the cross is what breaks the chains of our former conformity to sin. So getting Jesus right is being rebuked by him. It's conforming to him. And finally, it's treasuring him. It's treasuring Jesus. It's holding him in our highest value. It's not just doing a bunch of things right. It's living in light of the grace of Christ and the cross. It's holding him in highest value above everything else. And what that calls us to, it calls us to being ruthless with anything that we find ourselves treasuring more. Be ruthless in getting rid of that from your life. Because the question that we all have to ask is what are we giving our all to? What are we giving our all to? When Jesus is our treasure, it means we have somebody who embodies our highest meaning of worth. How amazing is that? And because he's this worthy, it means we can't possibly attain him. But that's okay because he attained us on the cross. He is our inherited treasure by grace. That's the good news. So getting Jesus right, which is understanding who he really is, his mission, his desires, his heart, is the most important pursuit of our lives because it's the only pursuit that leads to life. Getting Jesus right is getting Jesus himself to treasure and to value, being crystal about who Jesus is and conforming to what Jesus says leads us to the cross, which is where we know we experience this love and this weighty, heavy joy of Christ. Because at the end of the day, we are not who we need to be. Oh my gosh, man, I am not who I need to be what Jesus is. Let's pray. God, we thank you that all we need and all we have has been provided by the cross of Christ. Lord, when we see a passage like this that calls us to take up our cross, that calls us to deny ourselves, which calls us to think on the things of God, which calls us to question what it is that we've been misvaluing in our lives. It's, it's sobering and it humbles us. But yet this is where we find freedom. This is where we find freedom at the foot of the cross. 
This is where we find rest. This is where we know the love that surpasses knowledge, the peace that passes understanding. This is where we find hope, Lord. And so, Lord, present us with that hope once again as we come before you as not very humble people, as thinking that surely this applies to somebody next to me more than me. Surely this is just an old story where Peter, a disciple, got reamed out by Jesus, but surely this is not my word. Surely this is not my world. Surely I'm not thinking that way. Lord, surface in our hearts what needs to be surfaced so that we can turn and say, Lord, I do do this. This is representative of me. Thinking with a worldly mindset is characteristic of me more than I want to admit. And Lord, draw us to repentance, knowing that in repentance there's so much hope, there's so much freedom, there's so much grace available to us because Christ stood on our behalf. He died on our behalf. Lord, thank you for this. Let us treasure Christ. Let us treasure your Son above all other things, Lord. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.